Hi, my name is Emily Carl, and I'm the Youth Director at Center Church of South Hadley, Massachusetts. If any fictional character could be my youth pastor, it would be Dean Craig Pelton from the TV show Community. Because of his extensive wig and costume collection, I think he would add a lot of spunk to lessons and games. My name is Emily, and I'm a woman in youth ministry. You're listening to the Woman in Youth Ministry podcast, hosted by Heather Kennison. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Women in Youth Ministry podcast. This week, I have two guests on our podcast, Lindsay and Maggie Anderson. They are both youth pastors in the PCUSA at two different churches. They have also been quarantined in a 700-foot apartment for all of the coronavirus as newlyweds. So go ahead and say hi, ladies. Hey. Hey. It's good to see you. Why don't we have you guys introduce yourselves so that people can hear, associate the name with the voice. I'll go first. So I'm Maggie. Uh, I uh, work at Second Presbyterian Church in Nashville, uh, and I'm the director of youth and young adult ministries there. And I've been there for almost a year in July. <clears throat> I am Lindsay. It should be easy to tell us apart because I'm Irish, so the accent's <laughs> different. Um, I have been living in the U.S. for the last, it'll be five years this July. I serve as the Director of Youth Ministries at First Presbyterian Church in Franklin, uh, which is a suburb just south of Nashville. Um, I think that's, what else do you want to know? Well, our first question we always love asking people is, what is your call story and how did you get involved in ministry? Uh, so I guess, I don't know, as a kid, I was very involved in church um, and had a really, was fortunate to have a very strong youth ministry at my church. Um, and it was just a very huge part of my life being involved in youth. Uh, and then I lost my dad when I was in seventh grade. And so that I think like youth was like the constant for me through all of that. And so it kind of solidified even more of like this thing in my life. And then like became part of the student leadership team in high school and then uh, volunteered as a college student. And then it was just always kind of something that I love being a part of. And then after college, I couldn't find any jobs in where I got my degree through, which was nonprofit management. Uh, and yeah, so like youth ministry was just kind of always there. And then I found this program called the center for youth ministry training. Um, yeah, so it provides, if you don't know about it, a three year, um, graduate residency program and they place you at a church and they also provide a master of arts and youth ministry, um, (coughs) degree. So got that and it's been great. And that's how I met Lindsay too. So that's me. Uh, my call story. So my family weren't a particularly churchy family. Grandma made my parents send us to Sunday school every Sunday, but we didn't really do. Gosh, I don't think, I can't remember ever sitting as a whole family in worship. Um, and then when I was 11, the school system's different where I come from. So I'm like, I can never remember what grade that is. But when I was 11, 
Uh, my parents got divorced and it was not the worst divorce in the world, but also not the best divorce in the world. Um, and just with some stuff going on at home, uh, I really started to enjoy being at school and being at church. It was almost like an escape where I could just forget about all of the home drama. Um, and so, yeah, I started most of my free time that when I wasn't at school was spent in extracurriculars or at church, whether that be in choir or a youth group. Um, and I guess like as I progressed through middle school, I noticed ways in which there were churches that were doing a good job of youth ministry. And there were churches that were doing a really bad job of youth ministry. Um, the church that I grew up in told my sister she was going to hell because she was reading Harry Potter. And I was like, huh, this is maybe not the way to look after kids. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I think like even, even from like the age of middle school, I recognized that kids were being either forgotten or just spoken to in a way that was not particularly respectful or in a way that recognized their full humanity and potential. And so I guess like that's where like a cult of youth ministry and um, was born. And um, then I got to high school and I was talking with the careers advisor at school. And I said that I wanted to do a degree in theology and the leadership at my church and my careers advisor and my parents all said, and I quote, what is a woman going to do with a theology degree? So I went and did, yeah. uh, so I went and did an undergraduate in biochemistry. Um, so I'm published in a scientific paper for helping to discover the three-dimensional structure of protein SSO1398. That's like a really fun one for like two truths and a lie. Um, but after my undergraduate, I was like, I still, like, I don't want to give my life to science. I want to give my life to the church. I think the church... Um, almost more so than youth ministry was just a really significant, important um, idea and reality for me. And so I applied for an internship through the Presbyterian Church in Ireland and uh, was supposed to serve it for, uh, as an intern for a year. Um, I got along with the congregation. They got along with me. So I stayed for four years. But every year they were like, we're paying you as an intern and you need an actual adult salary. So you need to figure out what's next. And uh, people kept saying, like, there's this place called the Center for Youth Ministry Training in Tennessee. And I was like, I'm a kid who didn't go to camp because I got homesick. I'm not moving to Tennessee. <laughs> like, mm -mm, the Bible Belt? No, thank you. Uh, and so after three years of nudging, I was like, look, I'm going to apply and I won't get in. And then you can stop telling me to do this. And clearly, given the fact that I'm here, turns out I did get in. Um, <laughs> So it was a bit of a reluctant move, but one that I'm deeply, deeply grateful for. And I've learned a lot in the last five years. A lot of my perspectives have changed. Um, and I've been super grateful for um, the experience in seminary um, that for me continues. So, yeah. That's awesome. So you guys actually met through the Center for Youth Ministry Training. That's so cool. I know um, Bethany Dixon, shout out Bethany, like I know her fiance um, is, I think in maybe his last year there, or, or maybe, I don't know, but she talks about it all the time, and uh, people know her because they know her fiance, which is pretty hilarious. Yes. So people all the time will be like, Bethany, is your fiance? 
Yeah, shout out <laughs> Bethany. Shout out your fiance. I know you guys both have women in youth ministry shirts. I stand. I stand. So I initially got connected with y'all about a year ago. I went deep into my Twitter feed to figure out like the exact day, exactly what was said. It was literally like a year ago, y'all. Um, and I tweeted as I do because I'm a controversial eight on the Enneagram. We say this every episode. It is time for men to rise up and say no to leading workshops at conferences if women and people of color aren't represented too. I got a lot of likes for this, which is nice because it's freaking true. And then yeah. Maggie, you jumped in and you tagged a popular youth ministry organization and mentioned that they also disenfranchise the LGBTQ community. And I was like, uh-huh. And then Lindsay jumped in and responded that you have walked out of workshops because of the disrespectful way that queer persons are spoken about as if you're not in the room. And yeah. then I got in trouble because I may have suggested that you weren't actually welcomed there in the first place to which the CEO of this organization found my cell phone number and called me. And we had a nice little chat about all of this. Wow. I love that that rattled them. Like, how dare you suggest that we may not be welcome in a place where we felt the need to leave. Right. <laughs> and yeah, I w <laughs> yeah, I have so much to say. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say it though. I'm going to let y'all say it. Um, how have you guys been disenfranchised? by ministry organizations or churches uh, for being queer? Gosh, that could fill a whole podcast episode easily. Um, we'll need to do a series. Um, but um, <laughs> to go back to that specific incident that you mentioned, um, the thing that really bothered me about it is that it wasn't even a workshop about sexuality and gender. I mean, if that's the workshop, it's kind of fair game. Like, mm -hmm. share your perspective even though like, oh, look, it's a straight man sharing his perspective. Um, it was a workshop about fostering discipleship. And the leader essentially used transgender youth as the example of they clearly don't care about discipleship. And I'm just like, stop using us as the token sinner. Like, be a little more creative. Like, find some other example, because it's always us. Um, and so I think that's what, like, really bothered me there, that it was about fostering discipleship and you still find a way um, to make us the problem. Um, and I say us as the queer community. I obviously, as a cisgendered person, cannot speak for transgender people. Um, and so I feel like that's a super common thing. Like we would go on mission trips with a very popular mission trip organization. Uh, and I went two for two with this organization on um, anti-queer comments made by leadership during the midweek service that the kids get to go to. And I was mm. just like, dang, that's two years in a row. That's great. Cool. Um, like organizations like that do a really good job of masking it. So you yeah. don't really actually know what they're talking about. But if you're in on it, then as a queer person, you're like, ding, 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 bingo, bingo. Um, buzzword. buzzword. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that um, 
a lot of youth ministry organizations, as I'm sure has been stated here before, are just super um, white male perspective dominated. And so um, I think queer people are either ignored or actively made out to be some kind of villain. Um, but then also, I think like my home denomination that I grew up in uh, a couple of years ago at their general assembly voted to add explicit wording to their constitution uh, that said that um, people in same-sex relationships um, cannot receive the sacrament of communion and their children cannot receive the sacrament of baptism because, and again, quote, they do not have a credible profession of faith. Mm. Um, and so that was hard for me. I actually wrote a blog post about it. Uh, it's part of a Grace Note series on a theology blog for Northern Ireland. Um, and it's on my blog too. And it, there was a lot of tears over that, that, that those who, who baptized me um, and covenanted to love me and to love me well we're now excluding me from the table of Christ. So I grew up in the Methodist church. Uh, Shout out. Yeah. We um, love our Methodist colleagues. Oh yeah. We really 100%, do. 100%. Yes. Like I was at a Methodist church during CYMT and probably would still be there possibly if it was like a full-time position. Um, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like general conference, I think I can just say that and like that is obviously <laughs> a disenfranchisement yeah. and very painful it's interesting Lindsay, that you mentioned communion because um i wrote about this on my personal blog i grew up southern baptist and and obviously southern baptist church believes that homosexuality is a sin we talked uh just for those listening we talked a little bit before this about how homosexuality is such like a oh word <laughs> to the queer community <laughs> <laughs> what did you say those gosh darn gays yeah no it's so <laughs> gross it sounds so disgusting to say um but yeah like I grew up believing that you know and and not just grew up like went into my first few years of ministry you know um believing in and probably teaching it through my actions if not my words um and then when I came to the Methodist church, I sought refuge because I was just looking for a place that affirmed me as a woman. And in my interview process, uh, they asked me from the very first interview, you know, we're a church that affirms the gay community. We, we're not just open, but we're affirming and we want to see full inclusion, um, married and ordained. Um, you know, what do you have to say about that? And I was like, honestly, I don't know if I'm there, but I love your kids really well. All I know about kids is that they're constantly changing every day in every single way of their identity. And I can just be a constant and love them well. I'm not sure about the theology, but I'll love them well. And they took a chance on me. And I panicked for probably my first year and a half because uh, I would hear sermons. I would hear a senior pastor say from the pulpit, here is the biblical explanation of why we include gay people into the full life of the church. And I panicked so much, y'all. Like I was. I really thought it wasn't for me. And so there was this moment in staff chapel, we had hired um, a communications director who was openly gay. And um, one day during staff chapel, our senior pastor called on her to help him serve communion. And she had, she was an ordained clergy and I think like the UCC, but was taking a break from pastoral ministry to do commu communications. And 
I remembered having to make a decision. This is what was going through my head on whether I was going to take communion from a gay person. And it was hard. It was a hard decision. And that was the moment I started thinking about like this, this woman's life and how she like was way more on fire for Jesus than I was. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, dang, like this gay person is a better Christian than I am. So maybe I should just take this communion and maybe I just need to change my mind while I'm at it. And that was like the moment that just really shifted my perspective. So it's interesting that you say communion because, um, communion was a a big game changer for me. Yeah. I think that, um, I can be a bit of a church nerd at times, but, uh, Meg's like rolling her eyes. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I think the sacraments are so important in the life of the church and, uh, you know, like I've been on the opposite end of that where I've received communion from someone who I know doesn't want me at the table. And that's also hard. Um, but I'm so thankful that, that we both choose to show up anyway. And we receive the same bread and the same cup and the same grace. And, and through our actions proclaim that we together are united in bearing witness to what Christ is doing, um, regardless of our theological differences. Um, and I think that that is really significant, especially given the current climate of what disagreements look like in the public sphere. Um, and so, yeah, I think, gosh, I love the sacraments. That could be another whole other episode, I feel, you know. <laughs> so I do have, you know, I, I am curious, what are some organizations or some places that you have felt safe as, safe in as a queer person in ministry? So yeah, I entered seminary, like very much still steeped in uh, my conservative upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, a fear that I had when moving here and going to seminary was that somehow seminary in the PCUSA would convince me that it was okay for me to be gay. Um, that fear was realized and I'm thankful for it. Um, but like 90% of my professors um, at seminary have just worked really hard to be inclusive in how we speak about humanity and about God um, we use gender neutral pronouns for God. We talk about God's self. Um, and we're just very careful about how we speak about people who are different from us, especially minorities, um, whatever that might be. Um, obviously in seminary, you do a lot of wrestling with the racial narrative in America. Um, you do a lot of wrestling with patriarchy. Um, and, and you read a lot of womanist scholars um, and so that was just a place that opened up to, to me anyway, so many different yet faithful perspectives of what it means to be a follower of Christ in the world at this time. Um, and so for me, the classroom has been a really safe space. Um, I'm known as the student who sometimes cries tears of joy in the classroom and everyone else is like, it's past lunchtime kind of go to lunch now and I'm like it's so beautiful um (laughs) Meg's laughing because it's true um so I think for me seminary was probably one of the most significant places and I think that I think the PCUSA as a denomination um have really worked to hold space for a breadth of 
different kinds of people and different kinds of theologies and it's so, like that feels like a safe place uh to me and um, i would have said too yeah but i think that safe places also feel limited not that the place is limited but the number of places are limited um, that are like explicitly stated yeah, because there's a lot of places that are like, we love our gay siblings, and then they're like, psych, we want to make you straight or celibate, you know? Um, and that's a pet peeve of mine. I almost respect more churches and organizations that are like, we think it's wrong. Because then I'm like, cool, I'll not go there. Um, but I think there's a real danger when, when places try to be welcoming, even though they're not theologically in a place where they can genuinely allow you to flourish and allow you the space um to work out your own theology i mean mm -hmm. if you can't do that it's not a safe place not just about the queer issue but about any issue um and so yeah um, yeah well are you gonna say anything else mm -mm. i'm the talker it's true <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> There's always one, right? <laughs> you know, so not every, first let me back up and say, I'm really glad that seminary convinced you uh, to be fully yourself. I know of several queer people who are not there. And I know um, there's one in my city I watched his story unfold and I'm like, can you please just come work for me and like come into this church and like be safe and be full of yourself like that. It's like my dream. And I feel like every year I'm like, quit doing what you're doing. Just like come over here. I'm like, please be safe. Like quit putting yourself in situations where you get rejected over and over again, come into my midst. But I also know, um, but I also know that's a hard journey that I can't understand. Mm -hmm. um, I just wish everyone could seek refuge, you know? Yeah. I think that it's a, it's a scary thing to unravel everything that you have been told. Um, I think what is true for many, many people is that, I think especially like, especially in mainline churches, in the Southern Baptist church, in those kind of churches, like, our theology has been constructed through history by white educated men in power. That has been the place from which God has been studied. Um, I don't really like that word studied. We don't study God. Um, but like, that's the place from which our theology has been generated. It's this one very specific perspective. Like when I think about growing up, any books that I read in faith formation, were written by white men who the institution worked for. Mm -hmm. Like, they're good, things are great. They get to lead, they get to make decisions. Um, and so I find that conservative white churches aren't huge fans of disruptive theology. Um, and at first, whenever we were reading things from, from womenist scholars and when we were reading things from like a liberation kind of lens, that some of it sat really uncomfortably with me. I'm like, this is not what is safe. This is not what we have been told is trustworthy. And so we're literally taught, like anyone who's not a straight white man, and I don't want to like 
I, straight white men are not the enemy. No, right? I, I'm married to one. I have to remind him all the time I don't hate him. Yeah, and there, <laughs> there are straight white men on my church staff who are some of the most wonderful, compassionate people um, that I have ever met. And I'm so, so thankful for them and for their ministry and for their friendship. Um, but, like, the voice of the straight, white, educated, wealthy man is the voice that we have been told is trustworthy. And so we're told to trust that over our own experiences because their experiences are the default and so therefore are not tainting um, how we think about God and how we perceive God. Um, that, yeah, and like we're, just, we're, we're taught to trust that perspective over um, all others. And so, yeah, at first you're like, whoa, like what are these people saying? Like what gives them the authority? And like, when you really look at those questions that you're asking in that turmoil, I think it highlights the problems with, with how we're taught and how we're raised in many, in many cases. And so all that is to say is that it was hard and it was scary and it was done with a certain amount of reluctance. Um, but, you know, Jesus has always been on the side of the oppressed. Um, and the experiences of those who are not at the center of power matter and need to be heard. Um, shifting our focus from like the traditional center of power to what people on the margins are saying about who they are and how they experience God at work in the world and like the hermeneutical lenses through which they interpret scripture matter and we need to elevate them and because hmm, like we need to hear something new. We need, we need to hear a gospel that is good for all people. Um, so yeah, I can't remember what the question was, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, like that shift is hard and it's scary and, and it can feel like we've got nothing to gain from it. And it's quite frankly, uh, easier to stay in our comfort zones and to not put in the spiritual and emotional energy to really wrestle. And yet all through the biblical narrative, we see that people wrestle with God and God shows up in unexpected ways and does unexpected things. Um, and I think that, you know, like God's character remains the same and that I think God continues to, <laughs> to wrestle with us and to show up in, in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. Um, and I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to, in a limited way, hear from a, a breadth of perspectives and voices that are all being faithful in different ways. And you know, I love this thought of like, we need to hear something new. We need to hear a gospel that is good for all people. And what strikes me about that is, is that the gospel was good for all people. It's yeah. we've messed it up. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I think that the gospel was only ever a threat to those in power, right? Rome did mm -hmm. not like it. Um, and yet we have, as a society, taken the gospel and married it to power. And now it's a threat to those here on the margins. I mean, not the actual gospel, but the thing that we claim to be the gospel. Um, so, 
yeah i'm like let's reclaim let's reclaim the gospel let's reclaim um our authority to do theology and to do good theology and to do theology well um yeah i think that i want to hear from people who are not like me mm-hmm. i want to hear from people who are not like the sole voice that i heard for the first 25 years of my life you know yeah um, so well, I'm thinking back on, um, you know, those, those people that you, in the first 25 years of your life and um, just thinking about those who don't, don't agree with our theology, like who aren't on the same page as us in terms of, yeah, being queer, like mm-hmm. you can be queer and faithful to God. Um, most people, most organizations, most Christians are not on the same page as we are, Um but we have to work with those organizations. Like they're the ones who hold the conferences. They're the ones who put out the curriculum. They're the ones who do the workshops, run the cohorts, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that organizations who don't agree with our theology, um, but do want you to feel welcomed? What are some things that they can do? I know that like, I like hate myself for asking that. Can I be honest? Cause I'm like, can you just like, because I also hate people or places that are like, yeah, we're open to you, but we're going to convert your butt. Like, yeah. And so like, you kind of, I would go back to what I said earlier, like, just be honest about it. Like, I don't need you to welcome me. And what I really don't need for you to do is to pretend to welcome me. That's like, no, thank you. And um, there's a, there's a professor that I had in seminary who I love dearly. And she she was our New Testament professor. Um, and again, everyone that I went to school with used to laugh at like how much I loved her. She was, everyone originally was like, you're going to hate her. She's super liberal. And you were, you grew up all conservative and you're just going to have an awful time in her class. And, um, it like changed my life in so many ways. Um, but she used to talk about the, the women in ministry question. And she said that like all of these like pastor dudes would call her up and be like, Hey, can we talk about, cause like clearly like, she was an ordained pastor and a professor in a seminary who taught new Testament and is just like super smart. Uh, and so they, they call her and be like, can we talk about this? And, and the thing that she would preface it with would be, if you're genuinely interested in a conversation, then yes. But if you're looking for a fight and to simply prove me wrong, then no. And like, that was a boundary for her. And so I think to organizations that maybe are not um, theologically in a place where they are totally affirming, um, that ask yourself that question. Are you truly willing to make the space to hear queer voices that you disagree with? Yes or no? If the answer is no, just move along and be honest. because I think that like it, 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 it takes emotional energy to talk about it and to be put in a situation where everyone is against you and you're expected to like defend your very being. Um, and so if you don't genuinely want to learn from the emotional investment of queer persons, then just be honest about that. Tell the truth. Be truth tellers, you know? Yeah. I think Meg might have a kinder response than mine, a slightly more gracious <laughs> response. 
I mean, it's kind of the same though. I think that it's really, it can be really formative to like open up dialogue and like between alternate views and not to say that we, at the end of this, we're going to be on the same page. No, like that's like almost impossible, but just how much like talking and like sharing story and like being vulnerable can like be like transformative even just a little bit like I think that like just creating space is what I think that organizations can do and like like the main reason why like we met like allow people that aren't like the typical workshop leader and keynote speaker like maybe change it up a little bit Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that um, I think that the difficulty with like youth ministry organizations and conferences is that relationship is often what allows us to be vulnerable and disagree. And where there's no relationship, that's harder to do. Um, and I think that's a real challenge for conferences. Where like we don't know each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we have no investment in each other or in a shared community. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that finding, like, if you're someone who genuinely wants to have this conversation, um, not an argument, but a conversation, um, then I think you need to plant roots somewhere where you're, where you can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, That, and again, I'll come back to the sacraments, you know, be somewhere where you will break bread and share the cup with people and then wrestle together. Mm. Um, I think there needs to be a commitment to one another in order to have difficult conversations. Maybe there doesn't need to be, but I think difficult conversations um, are easier and perhaps more likely to be transformative if you're in a place where there's a commitment to one another, to one another's flourishing, um, to one another's well-being, um, and a commitment to continue to show up over and over and over. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I think just try, try to find a community in a space like that rather than like a workshop at a conference, I guess. I think there's a place for a workshop at a conference, but I think that's like scratching the surface of, of a really big conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we saw that once so. with julie rogers and mark yarhouse Mm -hmm. at that same conference and it i think was the only time with that specific organization that other than what you said with your article that like you saw kind of a dialogue i think that's a great start yes have dialogues with no end goal in mind of like we're gonna come out on this with this goal or like this set of ideals like no we're just gonna have a conversation yeah for sure. I would also also challenge those organizations though, because like that was a situation where you had two people on different sides of the argument. Mm -hmm. It was like one instance, Mm -hmm. but there's so many instances where there's like people being like, Oh, the gays. And so I'm like, if you're going to have all of these opportunities for people to be like, Oh, the gays, then I think you should also create space for people to tell their own stories. Um, Mm -hmm. That, that don't don't tokenize people into like we'll have both sides of the argument this one time yeah, um, sure. which yeah. is what happens and so for those yeah. listening who are like what are they talking about this article um so I kind of like came out on my views of 
loving the queer community, especially our queer youth, maybe three or four years ago. And um, I was invited by one of these larger youth ministry organizations to write basically like a side-by-side article on the topic. And um, my article was like titled something like, uh, when your kids are gay and it's okay, because uh, we have to rhyme. Um, <laughs> and then the other one, I don't remember what it was titled. And the other guy, his, I mean, he was solid. Um, you know, if you're from the standpoint where you're like, I really don't think that I'm uh, at the point theologically where I believe that you can be queer and faithful um, to God. Uh, but I really want to be faithful to my students and just be there for them. Like he, he had a great ministry, um, you know, kudos to him for, uh, for really living out Jesus, even if we're not theologically on the same page. Um, but it was probably the only time, I don't know if anything's been published since where someone has said, Hey, you can be gay and it's cool. Um, so it was kind of a very like one, one and done type thing. And again, it was coming from a straight woman. (laughs) So yeah. Um, which I'm not the expert. Um, which I will say though, like, I feel like we, especially what's happening now in our country, like sometimes the people that are privileged and in power like need to step up and do like stand on the side of those who are not having the opportunity to share their voice so yes you said that that yeah i think like it's important yeah like listen to queer voices where you can but also like be a vocal ally in the places where queer voices are not welcome um I, I believe that, you know, as Christians, we all have a platform that people are watching us and they're watching how we use our platform. And, um, you know, what you guys are referring to is uh, some of the civil unrest that's happening because of the violence that has been racially charged lately, um, which has just been very, very hard. Um, and what I, we were in a women in youth ministry, like a, like kind of Facebook, like zoom chat last night. We were talking like, well, what do we have? What can we actually do? And I said, y'all, if people are watching you post your Bon Appetit videos and pictures of your puppies and uh, you're telling the stories of your youth ministry, but then they're not seeing you speak out against uh, racial violence, then you're going to, you're going to lose your black friends. Um, Like that's a problem. And, um, you know, I do think that people are watching our platforms very carefully, especially those who are on the margins and wondering what you think about things. And I know this is true because as a woman in youth ministry, I'm watching all these youth ministry organizations and I'm like, Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I literally all have a graded Google document that I will never share with anybody on how every single youth ministry organization, how diverse they are to women, my, uh, to people of color and also to, uh, gay communities, not even on there. Cause no one's affirming. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things I've been really thinking about as I've gotten women in youth ministry started is I want to make sure that people know who I am and what I believe. And you do not have to believe the same things in order to be a part of my community. But I have to be really honest about who I am because I will not let the people groups that I care about um, not know that they don't belong. And I'm going to be very clear. (laughs) I want for queer youth workers to be a part of this community. I love you and I affirm you and I want to be in community with you. I want people of color to know that racism is stupid wrong and I want you to be fully included. I also want my 
straight white brothers in ministry to know I want you at the table too. love y'all. I'm married to one of you. Yeah. So <laughs> like, that's who I am. And you don't have to agree with all my theology, but hell, like this is who I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to my podcast, everybody. <laughs> So there's one more thing that, you know, I really want to hit on, and, uh, and we talked about this beforehand, you know, um, how can we serve the queer kids in our youth ministry? So the statistics say that LGBT youth are three and a half times more likely to attempt suicide as their heterosexual peers, and transgender teens are about six times more likely to attempt suicide. And there was another study that I found that said uh, one in four suicides among teenagers are from LGBTQ youth. And so there's obviously a lot of, I mean, that's, that's not okay. Um, and there's so many reasons why our queer youth are attempting suicide. And, and it, I think it kind of all stems from not feeling like they're welcome or included, right? And so my question to you two is, how can youth workers, no matter what your theology is, uh, be more welcoming and inclusive to the queer kids in our youth ministry? Um, first of all, I would say that if you cannot affirm a student, you need to find someone who can. And the research also suggests that having one affirming adult pretty much reduces the risk of suicide back to the, the levels of their, their straight peers. And so um, there's no getting around that, that, that what they need is adults who affirm them. And so if you can't, please find someone who can. Um, there's an organization that was launched uh, this year called Beloved Arise. And they've got a website, they've got an Instagram. And they're basically trying to foster an online community for queer Christian youth. Um, and so there are resources and people out there um, who can do that. Um, so I think that's like the most important thing. I think uh, you also need to recognize that to people on the margins, your silence speaks volumes. Like your silence is deafening. Mm -hmm. And so saying nothing isn't really good enough um, your your silence is saying i don't affirm you and i don't really care my theology is more important than your life um and i know i know that like, that sounds really extreme but i think the situation is really extreme um you don't need to make queer youth like you or think like you you need to find them a place um, where they can do the work that they need to do. And maybe that means that they'll end up um, being self-affirming and going down that route. And, and maybe it means that they'll continue to agree with your theology that says that they need to be on their own for the rest of their lives. Um, you need to make the space for them to do that work. I think that often we're so tied to our own theology that like we 
the cold and noose around people's necks that like there's only these parameters that you can work inside and it, it's so damaging um I, I know from like first time experience and from from watching other kids i am um, i taught sunday school one day and uh this is not in my current church um and this kid hangs out after sunday school and the kid looks at me lo looks me in the eyes and the kid says Lindsay, why does the church hate gay people? Hmm. And that's what the church of silence was communicating to this kid. Yeah. And I thought, dang. I probably thought a ruder word than that actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> like th this kid's probably gay. This kid thinks that the church hits them. And if the church hits you, then God must hate you too. Hmm. Yeah. I, think that, I think that in general in youth ministry and not like when it comes to anything, in youth ministry, I don't believe that my job is to make kids think like me. Mm -hmm. I think that my job is to help foster healthy conversations. My job is to enable a community to disagree well and to still show up and to still say that for all of our differences, we have been called to this time and to this place to bear witness to what God is doing together to respond to God's grace together. Um, like, yeah, it's not your job to make kids think like you. <laughs> yeah. I'd say also even going back further, like if you're a youth minister and you're looking at your youth ministry and you're like, oh, I don't have any gay kids. That's not a problem. That doesn't, that doesn't affect me. You probably do. You just don't know it. Or maybe they aren't like, they don't like fully know it yet. Like, I think that it's something that affects every one of us, even though we might not think it does. And that you can't talk like they're not in the room. Like, yeah. Yeah. And like in my experience, you know, I've had, I've had kids come out to me before they've come out to their parents, even when they know that their parents will be fine with it. Yeah. And they need, they need that safe place. I, for me growing up as well, like I think that, that part of the reason where I, that I didn't come out as a teenager and like tried really hard to be straight as so many queer Christians do um, was that it didn't feel safe to tell anyone because I felt like either they were going to like someone literally, someone literally suggested that I go to a retreat where people could pray the gay away. And um, I was like, I was in college. I was like, no, thank you. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you had this fear that they would try to do that. Or if you were like, but it's fine, like I'm not going to act on it, that they would then like try to make you the poster child of like... Celibacy. Yeah. And like yeah. no one wants to be a poster child, right? right. Um, and why does your sex life have to be on display like that anyway? That's a whole yeah. other thing. I think, yeah, I think that's like another really good point to raise is that often heterosexual people over-sexualize queer people. Like, y'all think about sex way more than we do. Like, like you, you reduce it to that, and like, no healthy relationship is reduced to that, right? And so, again, I'm like, stop it. <laughs> It always makes, it makes me laugh when I think about like when I, you know, in my Southern Baptist University, um, we had to sign like a covenant 
And the covenant said no premarital sex, no extramarital sex, and no homosexual relations. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, so could I get kicked out for like kissing a chick? But <laughs> I only get kicked out if I like, like engage in P to the V with a guy. Like, right. like I can, <laughs> what are your standards? Why are you thinking about it that much? We're closing in on time and we usually close with two questions. Uh, the first question is, we're the women in youth ministry podcast. What's one point of advice you have for a woman? And the second question we ask is one point of advice do we have for men? Um, but Lindsay and Maggie challenged me. Um, and I totally agree that oftentimes youth ministry is a very binary ministry, meaning that we are very boys on one side, girls on the other. Um, so we're going to eliminate those questions. What advice do you have for the queer youth workers who are listening? I think that looking through posts on women in youth ministry recently, there have been a lot of, OMG, I'm in this other group. And like, this is how disrespectful they're being. And it's really upsetting. And that's completely valid. Um, and like awful. Um, but I would say to like, especially to anyone who, who either like needs to fight for their space at the table or whose mere existence is a form of resistance. And um, it's totally okay. And I think super helpful and healthy um, to create boundaries and to choose your battles. And um, like a lot of those Facebook groups that we complain about, I just don't join them because I don't like, I don't need to see that, to hear that. That is not a fight that I have to have, you know, and going back to community is the place where transformation can happen. I would rather invest my emotional and spiritual energy um, in places like that, um, that I'm not called to fight every fight. Mm -hmm. Um, And neither are you. And so it's okay to disengage and it's okay to block people who post negativity all over your social media. Like it's okay to have those boundaries. And I don't think that that's being disrespectful to people. I think that's merely saying this is what is okay. And this is what is not okay for me. And because I think to take care of our students and to take care of one another, we need to take care of ourselves Mm -hmm. and we need to tend to ourselves. And, and especially for people and um, on the margins who's where there's a question mark over whether they're welcome or not I think it's really important to think about where am I willing to engage and where do I need to walk away for my own sake and then consequently for the sake of those that I care for I guess like that that's what I've been thinking of recently yeah. mm. I guess I would just say just because I, when I first went into ministry, like didn't really have any other, like through CYMD, I met several other queer people in ministry. I was like, whoa, this is actually like an option. Like I didn't realize anything because we didn't talk about that earlier. Like we didn't come out until seminary, like only like a few years ago. It's not like we were out all throughout yeah. our lives. And so it's like once I saw people, um, that were also living their truth and being in ministry and all that, and that that was an option. Um, like I felt okay to be me. 
Um, so I guess that's the advice that I would give to other queer people in ministry that like we exist um, and that this isn't a world that's even while a lot of times it can feel dominated by straight white men um, that we also are here and that yeah but like also same same time no pressure to like feel like you need to come out and be visible like be self-preserving and like love yourself and care for yourself yeah all of that I guess I would say and I think like to, to all the the non-queers out there um how are your queer students who are there um how are they seeing themselves in youth group leadership in church leadership um you know like if you're a guy um are your girls seeing women lead and preach and teach mm. um and also I feel like be aware that there are a plethora of identities within the queer community. And so I need to be mindful that, um, like I'm, I, there's like trans students around as well and I'm not trans. And so how, how can we find ways um, for them to connect with trans adults um, and to see themselves in that way? Um, I think it's easier to self-actualize when we see ourselves reflected in the world. Mm-hmm. And so um, how are you surrounding yourself with people who are not like you? And that's a question for us too. Like how are we surrounding ourselves with people who are not like us? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's the, the thing that has opened up uh, my journey of understanding and accepting uh, my queer peers and my queer students has just been a posture of listening. And so I'm hopeful that there are people today who are listening who are like, I am just really curious. I saw the title of this podcast and I was like, what is Heather doing? What's going on? This is new. Um, who are maybe now asking some questions that maybe they weren't asking before and who are just listening in a way that they haven't listened before, because I think that's what opens doors. Um, that's what has opened doors for me. And it's, uh, and yeah, and I, I'm just really thankful that you guys came on today and that, um, you were open to this experience. Um, this has really blessed me and I'm hopeful that it has blessed some other people, women, men, non-binary, whoever you are, y'all. Um, I, I'm just thankful. Um, thankful for your voices. And if people are interested in, in resources, we can like drop a list and yes. if, like, if questions come up from this from people, like we're happy to, to get together again and, mm-hmm. and have further conversations. Um, I think it's an important conversation and it's an ongoing one in the life of the church. And so um, we're happy to be part of that. I am. No, yeah, me too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And we'll definitely, we'll put that list in the description box of this episode and we'll also link it on our website. Um, Lindsay Mungie, thank you so much for coming on again. This has been a huge blessing and um, for everyone else who is listening until next time. 